right, John. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for um, your time. Um, you know, I know a little bit about your story, but I know there's probably a good amount of, you know, folks, whether they're in the startup community or uh, the venture community or uh, um, legal community, maybe just kind of introduce yourself and, you know, kind of like, you know, who are you? Sure. Hamilton, thank you. Thank you very much for asking me to be part of this. I, uh, just so you all know, I've been a big fan of Hamilton's for a while now. And, um, put the mic even closer. Yeah, I'll put it even closer. <laughs> uh, just love what Hamilton's doing and, and always willing to, anything I can do to help you and your business and what you're doing is, 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 is heaven for me. Um, just a good kid. As to me, I'm a, uh, I'm born in Ohio. I, uh, started off as a, as a lawyer doing securities work, um, what I liked about securities work was that it was a chance for me to have a skill that I was able to develop with a firm in Texas that I figured out early, every company, whether they're big, smaller, or in the middle, needs money. So if you have the ability to help people raise money under the federal and state securities laws, you're always going to have clients. And so it's kind of played out that way. So whether it's early stage like now or Series A or uh, people building their cap tables or in the beginning of my practice, there was a lot of years where we had a lot of companies that were going public. You don't see that as much anymore. Um, but and when I first moved here in the uh, Virginia area, my wife is from here, um, we were doing a lot of work for companies that people have heard of, Jackson Hewitt, Dollar Tree, Family Channel, um, Metro Information Services, a bunch of banks. So all those companies who were raising significant amount of money were going public and they had to go through the public process. And going through the public process, we became, I became sort of a cop in the sense that we had to describe the business in a way that an investor who was experienced would have an idea of exactly what the company does. The, the, the SEC gives you a recipe book of information they want you to provide to the public markets, whether it's the background of Hamilton Perkins, what Hamilton's business is, um, what the cap table looks like, how the financial statements are. Is it a C-Corp? If so, what does the capital structure look like? How is governance done? Um, who are the other employees of the company? Sort of a recipe book. So when you've written a lot of those descriptions, you learn a lot about how different companies do different things. So what I love is playing a vicarious role as an entrepreneur. So I'm too much of a chicken myself. I need to, I had three kids in school and I got to pay for bills and stuff. So for me, it was always a chance to talk to Hamilton Perkins about what he's doing, ask you the questions you and I talk about all the time, knowing that eventually, if you are gonna raise money or sell the business or buy other businesses, there's gonna be certain information that, that you're gonna need to be able to tell people. So I've gotten pretty good at asking, you know, the kind of questions people who are gonna put money in wanna know. Um, represented a lot of investors as well. So on the investor side, it's the fact that I've done work for companies and, and seen, and not just me, I mean, I'm a securities lawyer, M&A lawyer. This, around the country, some of the best lawyers, I think, are securities M&A lawyers all over the place. There's a million of them out there that are really good. We all kind of do the same thing, though. It's, it's, it's designed to, if we're on the investor side, ask the same questions we would ask if we were company counsel and find out what's going on. Um, the really good investors go beyond what the public markets ask for, though. I mean, they'll get into some things that people wouldn't write because um, in terms of revenue model and what they want to do, like questions we were asking, I was asking you today, you know, what do you see happening in 22, 21? 
what's going to be different. People are afraid to forecast that kind of stuff. But if you're an investor, you really care about that because you want to see what's going on. So, so my job has been to sort of quarterback whether it's the company or whether it's the investor, whether it's private or public. I mean, the private markets have taken over since really 0405 is the place where people, private markets always existed. But since there's, you know, you have to really have a really big play to go public nowadays is sort of the way it usually works. Um, I wish there were more that were willing to be 100, 200, $300 million market cap companies like they used to be. But um, the private markets are there and there's just an enormous amount of money out there, whether it's, whether it's high net worth, whether it's venture, whether it's corporate VC, whether it's you know, just buying the company or buying a piece of the company, strategic buyers. So my, my play has always been to be in the middle of that. For sure. No, I think that's an excellent introduction. I wouldn't expect anything less. Um, <laughs> what, um, there's a couple of points I was thinking about. When you talked about a lot of the IPOs, was that pre dot com or 2000 or that's when you're talking to that? Yeah, what happened, Hamilton, is this, is that, is that in the 90s, there was um, a big change, obviously, the internet. And, and so, so the big change for me was that in like 98, 99, for the first time, I didn't understand anything about valuation. I couldn't figure out what these companies were, why, why they were able to get these crazy valuations. There was no EBITDA multiple that made any sense to me. First company I ever saw that confused me was a company called Netscape, which was the first browser. And they went public and I was working on a Market deal for a local maybe. supermarket, mm-hmm. Farm Fresh. And they were raising an enormous amount of money and I knew exactly how much revenue they had. They had an enormous amount of revenue. And they were raising money on a note. Um, and then this Netscape company is going out and doing this crazy stuff. So what happened is since there was just crazy interest in companies, all of a sudden a lot of companies that were smaller were able to get venture money. And the reason they were able to get venture money was because the venture funds knew that there was a public market where they could flip their you – know, you know, you don't sell on an IPO, but they would have liquidity relatively quickly. So a lot of companies were going public in a hurry. Now, the downside to that, of course, is what happened in 0102. A lot of great companies didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now, two things happened, I think, to kind of slow down the public side. One is the one there by Blames, which is Sarbanes-Oxley, which was a law that came into place where Congress saw a lot of people had lost money in the late 90s and early 2000s, and they wanted to, you know, Enron happened, and they wanted to make sure that there was going to be a world where investors would have more comfort. People blame that. I think what happened is people got smart. They figured out that a hundred million, two million, hundred million dollar public company is not big enough for CalPERS to invest in. It's not big enough for Fidelity to invest in. So the investors were almost all retail. Retail investors weren't as predictable as a big institution might be. So you could have a company that in the private markets is worth $200 million and in the public markets, the stock price, since there's not enough liquidity, says it's worth $50 million. And try to sell a $50 million company as on your internet browser every day for $200 million on the theory that it's really worth $200 million, it's hard. You know, people are going to say, well, 50 seems to be the price. So you see less of it now. But the good news is that there's just an enormous amount of private money out there. And, um, you know, that's what we spend a lot of our time on. So let's dig into some of that private money a bit. So... I know there's a 
there's a there's a overall economic. Um, I mean, we're in a long bull run, so yeah. things are going well. What do you think is going to happen if that doesn't continue? Will the private money still be there? Because um, you've you've kind of lived through all these cycles, right? Yeah. Like you you saw what happened in oh eight oh nine. Yeah. Um, what happens to private money in those times? Just it's a great question. We. Um, it's funny you ask that question because it's one of the first questions we had. We started an angel group here that's put over $60 million out. The first guy we had was a guy from a Northern Virginia fund. There had been a lot of Northern Virginia, D.C. Um, angel groups that were done in the late 90s, early 2000s. People who had you know, done incredibly well in their dinner clubs and different types of activities. And uh, one of the guys who formed one of those is really brilliant dude. His first question to me was, what are you going to do in a down market? You know what's going to happen. So we're waiting to see. You know, I, I saw. I, I saw. I'm an old man now. I saw 91, <laughs> 92, which was brutal until 0809. 0809 was ridiculous. And what we saw, though, was that even though the public markets got hurt pretty bad, there were a lot of opportunities for companies, a lot of opportunities for investors, smart investors who still have money. Who, by the way, are smart, right? They know the stock market's gone crazy. They look at their portfolio and they've you know, the really wealthy ones, the venture fund guys who have LPs who are relying on, on these people, they know that, that there's going to be a downer coming, okay? So this isn't going to shock people. So they're kind of prepared for it, I think. I don't think, I, I don't think it's gonna, we're going to get hurt that bad, it, ultimately, on a, on a private thing, unless it's like 0809. 0809 was ridiculous. But even there, there were a lot of companies that were able to raise money, not at the valuations they've been able to get in 06, 07, but there were still people there on the private side who were interested, who saw it as an opportunity. So am I worried about it? Yeah, sure. But I have a lot of investor clients that are looking forward to it because they're going to be able to get what they consider to be fairer valuations in the private companies with good companies, I mean great companies, than, um, than otherwise. It could be argued there are some companies now that are getting money that might not make money, might not be able to get money in those markets. That's okay, you know? Great companies, I have a partner, Gary LeClaire, who's a mentor of mine, and he and I, we've always, we agreed on one thing, is that great companies always get funded. Might take a while, might take some guts, might take somebody who's willing to hang in there. Bad companies often don't get funded, and sometimes those people that don't get funded, they learn a lot, and then they go do some other business. So talk a little bit about, I mean, that's interesting about kind of mentorship and advisors like who have you in your career who do you turn to for kind of like counsel if at all well on the law side when i was at a firm called baker bots there was a guy there uh, named wade wilden who had a big sticker on his big thing on his desk which showed it isn't the return on my money that worries me it's the return of my money so he taught me that even the investors are nervous okay and then i was fortunate when i moved here um i was with a firm called kaufman and Knowles, and there was there were two people there who were incredibly influential for me. One of them is a very well-known man, Vince Mastraco, who taught me an enormous amount about not just raising money, but how to like be a normal human being, hopefully at some level, talking to clients and not trying to show off all the time and just being helpful. Uh, another one that was really helpful for me was a guy named um, Gus James, who ran the firm. And Gus taught me that it's okay to say yes to the other side of the deal. 
You know, it's easy for lawyers to say no all the time. I'm not going to give you that. I'm not going to give you that. I'm not going to give you that. Gus taught me when to say, it's okay to say yes. And that was really important because the other guy, to, to get any kind of a, whether you're selling a company, buying a company, investing money or whatever, Vince and Gus together taught me that it's okay to accept the terms somebody offers. And that's really important. Then I came to work at, um, at Williams Mullen on the law side. Two guys there, a guy named Joey Smith who ran a firm, like a, just like a football coach, my hero of life. And then another guy named Tom Franz who was really well known. So you had that. But on the business side, there's been a lot of people as well. Um, the first one was the first guy who had the guts to hire me, a guy named uh, John Hewitt, who started a company called Jackson Hewitt. And he was really the first material guy to ever hire me. And he's an enormously brilliant man who, um, interestingly, was involved in the tax preparation business back in the 80s. Um, he went to his employer then, H&R Block, and said, hey, um, you know, right now our stores, we've got some stores where we've got really smart tax people, we've got some people who are really good marketing people, but they're not usually the same person. What if we did taxes on a computer system, a networked computer system? And he was told, well, that'll never happen. People will never do taxes on computers, which today is sort of you know, hilarious. So, so he, was, he taught me a lot about vision. Um, interestingly, another guy that was part of that whole Jackson Hewitt game is probably my biggest mentor ever on the business side, a guy named Keith Alessi, who really took Jackson Hewitt in 95 through 98 when we had our sale, um, along with what John had built, and, and turned a stock that was worth two bucks into a stock worth 68 bucks. And Keith was a CFO accountant and he taught me how to read financial statements. Mm. Um, and he taught me what it meant to be able to find value where others may not see it. And um, best leader I've ever seen. So from there, there's been a number of others who have been you know, important in my career. But I always look back at, at Keith in particular and say, you know, he taught me along with Gus and Vince that it's okay to be a human, but you got to work really hard so that you're prepared for whatever shows up. So, what do you do on a daily basis? Like, do you have a? I mean, I know I get a sense for what you're doing during the day, and I mean, I kind of get it as you know, I guess getting you know, like you say, whether it's an investor representing representing investors or mm -hmm. representing. Uh, companies, maybe kind of break down like some of the some of the work you do. Like, what what type of documents are you drafting? What type of uh, what type of? I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of storytelling to some degree. And, yeah. And there's a lot of uh, you know investigating even that you're doing. What what type of stuff are you doing? Well, so what we way we view our practice is lifetime practice. So we want to be the lifetime lawyer for clients, and so clients often at the beginning. Or, you know, they're just getting stuck. Like you just getting started. You got to go through all the organizational stuff and then they're going to raise some money typically or put money of their own in. And we work on that. And then because we've learned the business, we know a lot about you know, how many employees they have. We learn about um, the kind of vendors they work with. We learn about, um, you know, who they're going to be regulated by if they're a regulate, regulated entity and become pretty well schooled in what the company goes through. So then we will, and that my team, and I have an unbelievable team of corporate lawyers, tax lawyers, um, HR lawyers, 
ERISA lawyers, executive comp, when worst case, which I hate litigation. And so we kind of have a team of people that are there for the client. So if Hamilton's business has an issue pop up, they can call me or whoever, and then we know your business already. And if we're dealing with somebody who left, who's being difficult, or we're dealing with a, uh, we want to go get an exclusive relationship with a potential distributor, whatever it is, IP issues, we kind of know the company. So we become the quarterback for everything they do. And then in a perfect world, typically, hopefully, not always, but pretty much, we're there all the way through the sale. You know, and then often they sell to private equity funds and then we're still their counsel. Mm -hmm. So my practice has been based and our practice has been based on helping companies the lifetime of the company. So at any one time, we have like 80% of my practice, I'd say, is we we tend to look at things and say, what do they pay us? So like we have like the monthly payers. We love them. Um, And then you have like quarterly payers and then you have like annual payers and then you have the no payers okay well well the favor the funds that the the firm doesn't like it when i have the no payers right so it's i try to avoid that but i mean you know you help people raise money usually they can pay you but but so i like to have 80 percent of my practices monthly payer and then 20 percent is what my my favorite part which is new guys Mm -hmm. and whether that is like i just help on a company addison weeks i don't know if you know that yeah sounds really familiar yeah they went through the accelerator here that we started and and they're doing you know these two women are unbelievable and they just that you know rish rish just added their team so we were there to kind of help them get together on the ground and figure out a way for them to go and you know i don't know much of the time but i get to know these people and then they become you know, they become, I'm not going to say they're friends, but they're, they're friends, you know, like yeah. they, I've been through stuff with them. It's a relationship. Yeah. So, so my practice every day is just depends on what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I hate litigation, but we got some of that going on. Um, most of the time it's, it's, uh, it's just relying upon the early nut, which is to raise money. That's probably half the time. And the other half of the time is just helping companies go through whatever they go through, live and die with them, go to board meetings. You know, like local companies like ARIO and SVT Robotics, two companies that just came out of the ground who are now killing it, you know, and they call me with questions and it's like talking to my best friend, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, that part of the practice is, I'm fortunate, you know, I love what I do. I love talking to people about stuff. And How I, do you find those new companies? How are you find? Are you working in a referral network or um, is it, you know, is it all inbound or... How do you start up new relationships like that? Like, what do you recommend maybe to even a, a company that might be thinking about, you know, like you say, maybe that early, early cap raise? Like, how do you, you know, how do they start preparing to, to, to work with an attorney? Well, if you're going to raise money, the most important thing you got to ask is, does the lawyer have any understanding of the federal and state securities laws? Because if they don't, you're dead. Because people make mistakes all the time. I'll give you an example. Um, Everybody kind of knows you could raise money from accredited investors and whatever. But I'll tell you the issue people get screwed up on all the time that we run into all the time is this uh, broker-dealer rules. So there are these rules, right? And if you're Goldman Sachs and you've gone through regulatory review and FINRA looks over your shoulder and you, you can help people raise money for a fee, 5 6 7%, whatever the number is, in a capital raise, you know, you're licensed to do that. We get a lot of people that come to us and they've got friends, family, whatever, who want to get paid a fee um, to help them raise money. Well, the problem is that's a problem for the company. It's not just a problem because if you use somebody who's not licensed, 
As long as you don't get caught, you're fine, but, but you don't want to get in a position because the company can be responsible for repaying that money if the person who's helping raise the money isn't licensed. So if you're in a, in a position where you're raising money, get somebody who understands the, those rules. You know, what does the federal, what does the SEC expect, what do the states expect, and then what kind of referral sources can you use to find money? So that's, that's key. Then the next thing I'd say is, this is all self-serving, by the way, but the next thing, I'd, the next thing is that somebody who's seen it, you know, who's been around, because it's, you know, I'll give you an example. I have two sons that are computer engineers, okay? And, and, and one of the beauties of what they do is that when they graduated from college, one of them has, the other one's in the middle of it, they know more about computer engineering than anybody in the world, okay? They're the, it's, just, it's just there. I'm in a profession where I didn't know Jack coming out of law school. I was a history major. I didn't understand a financial statement. I didn't know what a balance sheet was. I didn't know anything. But, you know, like a number of years later, I've seen a lot. So experience means a lot, you know, because you've seen not just things go well. You've seen things not go well. And, you know, so you'll say, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, but I wouldn't do that. Why not? Well, because I've seen that like six times and that's, that just doesn't work. You know, the high net worth guy who wants to cause there to be some kind of a, as an investment, wants to change the way they're marketing and stuff. And it's like, well, you know, that person might have a good idea here. No offense, but it's your business. They invested in you. Do you think it's a good idea? Do what you think is a good idea. And they usually know best. Um, That'll come up with venture funds. I mean, you get venture funds that are investors. And a key point and you know, we, we always focus on this. And like ARIO and, and SVT are good examples. They matched themselves with venture funds that understood their business, okay? And that's really important. Um, some funds are generalists and they understand and they're flexible and they're smart. You know, they're really big name funds. They have really talented people. It's important though to know who your investors are because, because as you go from that hallowed closing through the sale five, six, seven years from now, you're going to be in bed with these people. So, you know, if you get back to your initial question, do you, you know, do you hire somebody, whether it's an accountant or a lawyer, somebody who's seen those kind of relationships work, who's seen those relationships, most important, not work, and can say, you know, I don't know that I would get them as an investor, even mm-hmm. though they have some money. And that's hard for a company to do because they want the money. So you vet them. And, you know, using my example I've already given, SVT, AK, and Michael did a fabulous job. They got four incredibly qualified investors who understand the warehouse space. And um, same thing with, uh, with Ario, who got the high net worth guys in town that are the best, period. And, um, and the people at NRV who are very talented, who understand their space. What do you think is kind of the, the investment cadence today to get sort of that return on capital. I mean, you may have 10 checks that you write yeah. for, um, you know, seeing anything return or anything close to a break-even scenario. But, like, what is what are you seeing, I guess, maybe pattern recognition-wise that, you know, what is, like, how many checks do you need to, to write or wires do you have to send if you're an early stage, if you're an angel or if you're, maybe you're an early stage fund and you're, you know, you're taking, you know, you're taking, you know, capital, putting it into, you know, these great companies. Like, what, what's kind of like the success rate there? Well, see, here's the, here's the key thing. Here's this, this is the most important thing. 
The people that write the checks, whether it's the people who are LPs and venture funds or people who are high net worth investors themselves who want to invest on their own, the, the key thing to remember is that, is that those people, to the extent they're thoughtful, which is 99.9% .9 of them, whether they have $10 million or $100 million or a billion dollars, a significant amount of their money is typically going to be managed by, by, by very, very well-respected wealth management firms. Okay, So the typical model is um, a person has, say, $100 million, I'm making these numbers up, $100 million, 80 to 85 is being managed by Goldman Sachs or whoever, okay? Signature financial here in town, whatever it is. And, and um, so that money's protected. And then uh, some percentage, almost always, is in real estate at some level, you know, whether it's their house, obviously, or maybe they're in some other things. Okay, so and that's doing well. And some people that of the 85%, all of it's in real estate. People have different things. This money that we're talking about, me and you, this, this high net worth investment money, the venture money through the LPs, this is a small piece of their portfolio, right? This is like 5% of their portfolio, maybe 10 if they're, you know, I mean, they're playing, not playing around, but they're, what they're looking for isn't the 10% return that Goldman Sachs can give them. It isn't the 12% cash on cash that a good investment in real estate can give them. This is something else. So why are they doing this? Are they doing this just to kill themselves, to like drive themselves crazy? <laughs> no, you know what they're looking for, Hamilton? They're looking for five times their money. They're looking for 10 times their money, that kind of thing. So, and that becomes a standard. So like us at Angels, this angel fund we started. So for five years, Monique Adams, who's just unbelievable, <laughs> our, our executive director um, and our board, or kind of get to play that game ourselves because we don't have I don't have a hundred million dollars to invest, but we get a chance to like to look at it. And what we look at is what I've learned. We look at it as okay, you're coming here, you're you have a company that's whatever it is, and and it's okay. So we got issues, and do we think you can grow the revenue quick, right? Because what we want to do, if we're going to put in you know say a million dollars, I want to see a world based on what your valuation is now. And what I think you can become in five, eight years, not necessarily will happen, but could um, in a reasonable world, take your, if we get say 20% of the business for a million dollars, okay? So that means the company's worth 5 million after us. Is that company, is there a world where they could be worth $25 million? Is there a world where they could be worth more than that? Do we believe in this world? Lisa Sleep, do I believe this company could be worth more than you know, what they started at? Yes, okay? And if, I if, if we see that, then it becomes interesting. Not that we don't like, or investors don't like, you know, to invest in a restaurant or a, or, you know, a stationary store. You want high growth potential. You do, and that's what they're looking for. They're, they're not looking to break even, you know, and they know they're gonna lose on some, right? But that's what they're looking for. So if, if you're a company and you're trying to talk to somebody, it's tricky because on the one hand, if you know that, you want to show them the type of returns that you think, you know, the kind of revenue you think you can generate in 20, 21, 22, 23. This hockey stick stuff, you know, where they say, oh, we're going to go from $1 million in revenue to $56 million in revenue in like three years. Well, you're not going to believe that, right? So, so it's, it's, a, it's an art form. It's, it's, you know, you need to be able to tell as a company, if you want to attract this kind of capital, you need to first have a business that has the potential to be worth five times it is now. 
And if, if it's not, it's fine. There's great businesses that are lifestyle businesses. I have neighbors that have better houses than me who have <laughs> been running lifestyle businesses their whole life, you know, and they're killing it. It's you a know? dirty word, though, in a startup. It is. It is. It, it is. It's a dirty word. It is, but it's crazy. I mean, most people, they're wealthy as hell because they're working for lifestyle businesses. This is a small sliver, you know. And uh, so knowing how that sliver thinks is important, you know. So, so when you put your, your numbers together, what you think you can do and I'm talking to you too. When you put those numbers together, you know, you, you gotta be you gotta be realistic, okay? So you put the numbers in and then they always say, Well what you know, what are you showing for 20, 21, 22, 23? And you put a number on there, you know, lesson one, I always tell people <laughs> lesson one, do not say the numbers are conservative, okay? If anybody out there who's listened to this, never use that word because we as investors, my clients as investors, every company that comes to us tells us the numbers are conservative. Okay. What does that mean? Tell them that I think my numbers are realistic, but I think I can do better. And that will not turn them off. That's gold. I like Realistic, that. but I can do better. And, 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 you know, it's probably the same number, by the way, but, but it, it just, you, people hear it better. And if I'm an investor, do I believe that? I don't know. You know, there's a couple companies in town here that are raising money that have raised, I got one in particular, I won't use their name, but they've raised about $9 million. I think, you know, the revenues is what it is. It, can it be a lot more? It can. Is it for sure yet? No. Do I have to believe that it can? You do. You know, and, and, and that is two things to me. That is team. That is CEO. I'm looking you in the eye right now. And I look the CEOs in the eye and I say, do I trust that person? Do I think that person can do it? Is that person humble enough to know that he, doesn't, he or she does not know everything and is going to be able to listen to anything new and react because they don't have it all figured out yet. If they got it all figured out yet, I'm not interested. I don't think most interested are investors are. They want to know, but you got to be. You got to see that there's some some humility there to learn. And the other thing is, you know, the other, for me, I, I'm known as as team and customers. Who are the customers? Who's going to buy this? How much they're going to pay? And why? You know, because if it's the greatest IP in the world, but nobody's going to buy it, it's not a business. Plan B, you stars, I used to hear, I'm too old now, I used to always hear about plan B. Plan B was, well, if the company stinks and it doesn't meet its model, you know, meet its vision, it can always sell their intellectual property. And you can, Hamilton, but the price you get for it, you know, intellectual property that hasn't been used to generate revenue isn't that high. Mm -hmm. You know, so you gotta believe, is this the right person? and other customers that are going to want to buy this and why. That's how I look at it. And I think a lot of investors look at it that way. It's a long-winded answer. Beautifully said. Well, I appreciate your time. I think sure. you've really brought some key points to um, what it kind of takes to be, you know, through, you know, like your, your career, personally, mm -hmm. your career. Um, you know, there's a certain amount of persistence and a certain amount of, you know, I, I can see your you're a winner, you know, you're thinking through like, okay, I'm a go, I, I go cycles. for it, <laughs> I go for yeah. it. You know, there's ups and downs, but you're, you're still, you're still here. So I think that's a, that's a testament. So where can, you know, where can people find you? Where can they follow you? You know, yeah. how can uh, the listeners connect with you? Well, I wish I could say I was an influencer like you or, uh, or the Kardashians <laughs> and you could just go to my, my, my Instagram site, but my children would think that's hilarious. 
Um, I don't, I'm on Instagram, um, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not smart enough to do that stuff. But I'm, I'm at williamsmullen.com. It's a law firm. And um, LinkedIn, obviously. And, and you can look us up at the uh, at 757 Angels. We're really proud of what we've done at 757 Angels. And um, you can find me. I'm around. Thanks again for doing okay. this. Okay. Thank you.